right, it's about a minute after two, so I think we might as well get started. Um, hi, everyone. Welcome. We have people joining us today from all corners of Ontario. Uh, and it's been such a strange year, uh, and this is such a new format for the Summer Institute. We were a little bit nervous about how it was all going to shake out, um, but it's been such a pleasure to see people coming to different webinars and many of you returning over and over again. Uh, I'm seeing some familiar names in the participant list, uh, which is really exciting for us. So it's great to have you here. Um, if you haven't met me before, I'm Michelle Thompson. I'm OGEN's Manager of Legal and Digital Development. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge my colleague, Christy Pegnuti, who is the League Organizer for this series. Uh, and she's going to be behind the scenes today, holding everything together as she always does. Um, she's going to be resolving technical issues while I keep an eye on the Q&A and chat. Please join me in welcoming our presenters uh, for this session on COVID and its impacts on the law in Ontario. Um, first up, we'll be hearing from Kumail Karimji, who has been practicing employment law and civil litigation for 20 years, and more recently is trained as a mediator at Harvard Law School and the Stitt Feld Handy Group. Uh, he graduated from the University of Toronto Faculty of Law in 1997, was called to the bar in 1999. In 2020, he completed a Master of Laws from Osgoode Hall Law School. And in addition to mediating, he acts as a third-party neutral investigator and designs alternative dispute resolution systems for organizations. Uh, he was a part-time vice chair at the Workplace Safety Insurance Appeals Tribunal for five years, adjudicating disputes regarding workers' compensation. He's also the founder of Karimji Law, a boutique employment litigation firm in Toronto. Um, so after we hear from Camille, we'll be hearing from Megan Scott, uh, who attended school in French in Toronto until the university when she went to McGill and obtained a BA in, with a major in English literature in 1998. She then attended the University of British Columbia and obtained her LLB in 2001. While she was there, Ms. Scott was the president of the Law Students Association and valedictorian of the graduating class. Ms. Scott was called to the bar in 2002 and started her legal career at McCarthy Tetro as a civil litigator. She joined the downtown Toronto Crown's office in 2005, where she has been working happily ever since. Uh, she spent most of her Crown career as a trial Crown, which is prosecuting everything from impaireds to homicides. She was the team lead for the domestic assault team at the College Park Courthouse, a member of the firearms bail team, and is presently the embedded crown at 51 Division Toronto Police Service. She's lectured extensively on criminal law issues, which she is also here to do today, ranging from search and seizure to the implementation of Bill C-75. Uh, and our third speaker who will be talking about housing law is Nina Hall, who is a staff lawyer at Kensington Bellwoods Community Legal Services in Toronto. She represents low-income clients, mainly in housing law. She's also served as Tenant Duty Counsel through the Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario for several years. And her favourite subject at Colonel By Secondary School at the OCDSB was history because she had fantastic teachers. It was my favourite subject too, actually. Um, so I have a couple of quick housekeeping items before I turn it over to our presenters. As I mentioned earlier, if you have questions or comments for our speakers or for us, um, please feel free to submit them using the Q&A function um, that you can see at the bottom of your screen. I'll be keeping an eye on that uh, and I'll be putting questions to our speakers uh, as they come through or in a little bit of a lot of Q&A time at the end of our session. Um, if there are any links to be shared that come up over the course of the presentation, we will post them in chat. 
Uh, and just a note that this presentation is being recorded. So the good news for you is that we will be able to post the video and the PowerPoints to our website within a week or two following this presentation. Um, I've also made a mistake about the order that we're going to have these presentations in. We're actually going to hear from Camille and then Nina and then Megan. Um, so today, before we get going, I'd like to acknowledge and give thanks to the traditional stewards of this land where I live in Parkdale, Toronto, specifically the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, the Huron and Wendat peoples. Um, as we have participants tuning in from all different parts of Ontario, you may be interested in a really great web resource uh, called nativeland.ca, it's native-land.ca, which has an interactive map where you can learn about the nations, languages, and treaties that are active in your area. And since we're talking about COVID specifically, we want to acknowledge the disproportionate toll that this pandemic has had on Indigenous people in Ontario, in both urban centres and in rural and northern communities, where public health crises are made unnecessarily worse by, among other things, the persistent lack of clean and usable water that Indigenous activists have been drawing attention to for well over a decade now. On that note, um, please join me in welcoming Kamel to get us started uh, with some conversation about the impacts of COVID on employment law in the province. Kamel, thank you so much. Thank you very much for that introduction and also for including me on the panel. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I am impressed uh, to see as many live participants uh, on online given this no doubt very busy time for teachers and gearing up for the return of uh, students to school. Uh, one side note on my bio, I'm also the parent of two teenage uh, girls who are uh, students in the Toronto District School Board. And so I commend you as educators for all the work that you're doing in uh, both uh, educating uh, kids in this province as well as uh, trying to keep them safe. As, uh, as they return to school. So I will be speaking about employment law and COVID and specifically the topic of layoffs. Uh, there are um, a couple of goals today. I'd like to briefly explore with you the sources of law and how laws are created in Ontario as a common law jurisdiction. And then also to look specifically at how employment law is coping with or responding to the massive and sudden increase in layoffs related to COVID-19. Uh, just by way of context, there are beyond layoffs many impacts as we all know of COVID-19 on the workplace. Issues arising relating to health and safety, keep, keeping uh, staff and, and workers safe, uh, human rights and accommodation issues, uh, for example, dealing with uh, work from home and childcare issues, uh, and then, of course, uh, the massive job losses that have flowed from COVID-19. And so, in a general sense, our legal system is expected to respond to and address uh, social issues and economic issues. And, and the question that I pose is, how does our system or how do we fare when dealing with something like COVID, an unprecedented global pandemic? Uh, also, by way of context, just the, the layoff piece I focused on because it is just such an unprecedented and, and massive phenomenon. So uh, just a few data points on that. In April 2020, there was a 2,496% increase in temporary layoffs in Ontario as compared to the previous year. 
March and April, cumulatively, 3 million jobs lost. Uh, by May, the unemployment rate in Canada had more than doubled. And uh, as of now, 8.5 million people have received SERP. So they've been in need of some form of income protection because of a loss of, of work, whether reduction in hours or a complete uh, loss of employment or self-employment. And uh, there, there are a couple of charts there, which just sometimes the visual is, is better than the, the numbers. Uh, you can see how significant uh, the, the job losses were in, in a very finite period of time. Uh, and, and I apologize if some of this is, is well known. I know that many of you, if not most of you, are, are law teachers, but just some basic background. When we're not dealing with a global pandemic, um, just some background in terms of how laws are created. So in Ontario and other jurisdictions that follow a common law tradition, there are primarily two sources of law, legislation and case law. Uh, legislation being the laws enacted by elected governments and case law being the law that's developed by judges hearing cases through the litigation process. Now, uh, the common law tradition was received in Ontario from England as part of the process of establishing colonial institutions with pre-existing indigenous legal systems generally disregarded. Uh, and that is the system that, that we have now today in place. Uh, these aren't exclusive areas and there is what some scholars describe as a, as a dialogue between the legislature and the courts and the creation of laws. So, of course, judges interpret legislation as it's developed, and sometimes legislatures enact laws uh, that are responsive to developments in case law. So prior to uh, the pandemic, the case law and the, the legal regime was generally fairly clear in terms of how temporary layoffs uh, would work both under legislation and under case law under the common law and the employment standards act is the law that deals with temporary layoffs that's the legislation that applies and it has a regime which allows for limited temporary layoffs 13 weeks within a period of 20 weeks or uh, in some cases up to 35 weeks within a period of 52 weeks without sparking or creating a termination of employment that then gives rise to, for an employee, a claim for Employment Standards Act termination and severance entitlements. However, under the common law, generally speaking, a temporary layoff was considered constructive dismissal, which would give rise to certain common law rights for an employee, namely an entitlement to notice or in, in general language, some form of severance package. So prior to the pandemic, we had a relatively clear answer to this question about what rights would be in the case of a temporary layoff. Uh, however, uh, with this unprecedented number of layoffs, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about what would happen with millions of people being laid off very suddenly with uh, no doubt a need for some form of income protection but also uh, employer concerns about the potentially very large liability that would flow from an obligation to pay termination and severance pay or common law entitlements to large number of employees when revenues were significantly down as a result of COVID and the related economic impacts. So I'd like to look now at, at how uh, the legislature and also our courts did or didn't respond and, and where that leaves us during this this COVID period. So on, on March 17th, as, as we all know, a state of emergency was declared in Ontario. And we had in Ontario, we have in Ontario existing, so pre-pandemic legislation 
the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act that was put in place to deal with uh, something like COVID, to deal with an emergency situation. And it allows or gives to the executive level of government acting through the premier, the ability to issue emergency orders uh, without the normal process of sitting in the legislature and having debate and, and voting. And so that legislation was used and there were a number of orders that had significant impacts on workplaces, including the orders providing for the closure of non-essential businesses, which precipitated the layoffs uh, and then various further economic uh, layoffs. The federal government then created a number of benefit programs, CERB perhaps being the most significant for purposes of uh, our discussions today. And then on March 19th, so just, just two days later, uh, this, was, this is really one of the first acts of the legislature. There was an emergency session held uh, to amend the Employment Standards Act to create a new leave under the act. So the Employment Standards Act has a number of leaves dealing with pregnancy and parental leave, bereavement leave. Uh, there, there are various leaves listed in the act. And a new one was created dealing with infectious diseases. So that created a job-protected leave for employees who needed to be off work as a result of COVID. And they were allowed to take that leave without a need for medical documentation or proof. And then on May 29th, this is a fairly significant development, the Ontario government introduced a new regulation, which uh, it applies to non-unionized employees on temporary layoffs. So the, the situation was that at the end of May, there were millions of people who were on temporary layoffs, and that 13-week period that we spoke about earlier was winding to an end. And so there was a great deal of uncertainty about what would happen to those employees when the temporary layoff period came to an end. And uh, really, there were a lot of employer concerns about the prospect of having to comply with the Act, the Employment Standards Act, and pay employees their termination and severance entitlement. So what the government did was it created um, effectively a deeming uh, provision, which retroactively put all of the employees who'd been temporarily laid off on a job-protected infectious disease emergency leave. And, and that, in effect, uh, what it did was took away from employees their rights to claim termination and severance pay and allowed employers to keep those employees on hold effectively while we were still waiting for the economy to reopen uh, as, we're, as we're now doing now. And the, 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 the structure of it is that these employees would be deemed to be on this infectious disease emergency leave for six weeks after the state of emergency came to an end. So state of emergency came to an end recently on July 24th, six weeks later takes us to September 4th. And that's when this, this deemed leave provision will be effectively phased out. So that's a fairly uh, rapid legislative change uh, through basically three main uh, branches. One, the exercise of power to issue orders by the Premier under the existing emergency legislation, an amendment to the Employment Standards Act, and then a new regulation under the Employment Standards Act. So a rapid change. And I note, though, without the same level of debate, consultation, and, and full process that one would normally have in a fully functioning democracy in normal times, but um, nonetheless, a, a rapid response. So uh, to the extent that there were bills introduced and debates, uh, committee hearings, these things were all somewhat truncated, and uh, nonetheless, there was a, 
a, uh, a new new regime put in place. So let's turn and look, look, look at what the case law approach has been to this situation. So on March 15th, uh, there was a notice from the Chief Justice basically suspending civil proceedings other than for urgent matters. And that was effective more or less immediately, effective March 17th. Uh, the notice of note provided that the court would continue to hear urgent matters and recognizing that the court plays a fundamental role in our constitutional democracy and that access to justice for urgent matters must always remain available. What I will say in the employment law space, there were not a lot of, there wasn't really any activity. The courts were effectively shut down for employment matters. I, I guess the, the issues uh, were not, uh, they did not rise to the level of, of urgent, um, I guess from the court's perspective. And, and so we, we basically had the courts on hold and no development of case law uh, related to COVID in the employment law space dealing with the layoff question that we're talking about. So looking at the common law, it's distinguishing features are reliance on precedent, the principle of stare decisis, which is the idea that appellate authority will be binding, or previous decisions will be binding on uh, courts hearing the same issues in the future, and uh, the development of law through an adversarial process in court. Now, analyzing those features in the COVID environment is, is can, can demonstrate some of the limitations of case law development or the common law when dealing with something like COVID, because COVID is unprecedented, making previous case law of limited assistance. There's a lot of uncertainty, not just in the employment law area, but in many areas of law. Uh, the civil courts were suspended, so cases weren't heard. There's also a backlog now to be reckoned with. And the common law, generally speaking, develops incrementally over time. And, and so in a context like this, where there's a, a sudden dramatic change without precedent, without new decisions coming out, we need to wait for the common law development. We have a bit of a gap in the law creating uncertainty and debate about what the outcome will be for employers and employees when dealing with temporary layoffs under, under a common law regime. And we may not know the answer until 2021 or 2022. I imagine there, well, I know there are many cases in the pipeline, uh, but we don't have decisions. So uh, just a couple of final uh, closing thoughts. I think I've got a few minutes left. Uh, just thinking about the way forward. So one thing I think it's worth noting is that the courts, despite the absence of new case law addressing some of the specific questions dealing with layoffs, there have been some strides made in this closure period to get the courts up to the 21st century and to utilize video conferencing and electronic filing technology. And the focus has been, in my view, on harnessing technology to effectively replicate what we do in the courtroom uh, without physically being there. And, but nonetheless, we're still looking at using the same systems uh, to resolve disputes that we've used historically. And uh, I came across an opinion piece written by Justice Rosalia Bell of Supreme Court of Canada about a month into the pandemic. And I've, I've just exerted a quote here that in a sense, after what Justice Bella does is review a number of the dramatic changes that we've seen in a number of different fields across society, and then proceeds to sort of bemoan in a way the, the lack of change in terms of how we resolve disputes. And, and she says, you know, notwithstanding all of these profound changes, 
um, in the courts, uh, a litigator from 1906 could, with a little coaching, be at home in today's courtrooms. And then comparing that or contrasting that to the medical profession where you know, things are done very differently now as compared to 100 years ago. And, and, and really advocates for a more dramatic uh, adaptation to how we resolve disputes. And so I leave you with a question relating to that, really a question maybe I hope probably the next generation your students may answer, which is about whether or not we should really use this moment as an opportunity to replicate exactly what we do in courtrooms through technology, or alternatively, whether we should try to imagine entirely new and better ways of res resolving disputes. So maybe that's something your, uh, your students will hopefully grapple with uh, when they get back to school this fall. So, thank you. Thanks so much, Camille. That was great. Uh, I think we're going to hear from Nina next. Well, thank you very much, Kumail, for that sort of outline of, of uh, how governments can respond and how laws are made. I'm going to jump right into sort of my area of expertise um, and something that people might have been hearing about a great deal on the news uh, around housing law. Given that we were all hunkered down during the pandemic and having a safe place to do that uh, was really important for homeowners. The options are obvious for renters. The stability of their housing was very important indeed. And um, as my little bio indicates, most of my experience in housing law is from the perspective of low income renters. And I fully acknowledge that I see only tenants with problems. Um, but I've also been a student of um, the Residential Tenancies Act um, as an articling student on behalf of of um, landlords, particularly the public housing, uh, biggest public housing landlord in Ontario, the current Toronto Community Housing Company. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the Residential Tenancies Act and the uh, moratorium that was imposed on evictions, which was ultimately the, the main impact of uh, essentially the suspension of all court activities. It also led to the suspension of enforcement of court judgments and the, the, the judgment that or the decision that comes out of uh, for tenants is a decision of the landlord and tenant board that might terminate their tenancy. So the Residential Tenancies Act is the law that governs the relationships between residential renters and their landlords in Ontario. It also defines who is a tenant for the purposes of the law and that's why I indicate there's some exceptions to who's covered. Um, if you're in a, a residence in university, the rules are slightly different. If you're uh, sharing the kitchen or the bathroom with your landlord, the, 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 the rules are, are different again. But I'm, I'm talking generally about what we traditionally understand to be uh, renters of residential premises. The law sets out the obligations um, of each uh, of a landlord, the rights and obligations of landlords and tenants. It also sets out the grounds on which a landlord can seek eviction and what the procedural steps are, what the notice requirements are. It includes a series of offenses that are enforceable under the Residential uh, Tenancies Act. Um, sorry, a little activity in my home here. Um, and it, most importantly for our purposes today, or what I want to talk about, it creates the Landlord and Tenant Board. And so the Landlord and Tenant Board is an administrative tribunal that's set up to resolve the disputes between landlords and tenants. Um, it hears applications uh, by either party, 
but the bulk of its work does tend to be around applications by landlords. And applications that go before the board can be mediated, they can be resolved through a, a mediation process created by the board, or adjudicated, so they involve hearing time with a third-party decision maker. The Act also allows for some ex parte eviction application. So an ex parte is ap an application that happens without notice to one of the parties, in this, in this case, the tenant. And so the uh, specific ones that I would want you to keep in mind are um, at, at the before COVID, uh, there's a process of mediation around arrears applications, mainly where a party can agree to some terms in a mediated settlement. And if they breach the terms in the mediated settlement, then the landlord can apply with an ex parte, with a no notice process to obtain the eviction order just based on not complying with the agreement. It's possible in applications other than for arrears, but I, I want to you to keep in mind the, the arrears um, uh, uh, aspect of it. So the, the, the Landlord and Tenant Board itself has been operating since about 1997. If one looks at the annual reports, it processes or it receives between 80 and 82,000 applications a year. In its last annual report, it indicated that it resolved about 79,000 of those. Uh, some through hearing process, about 61% through a hearing process, some through mediation, and, and some from withdrawals. Those are not only eviction applications, but landlords' applications outnumber tenant applications by about nine to one. And at the end of any given year, there's a backlog or um, uh, an, an unresolved number of applications that's in the range of 15 to, to 20,000. And by the beginning of 2020, it, it was a well sort of documented problem that there was a, a larger backlog happening at the uh, tribunal to the extent that the ombudsman of the province had launched an investigation um, into uh, the backlog. Generally, hearings had been held in person. Phone hearings were not that common except for um, northern regions. And this is a tribunal that has offices in many cities, but also sits in smaller communities on sort of a, a rotating basis. Board members are ordering council appointments, so they're not, they're not judges. They go through a vetting process by the government, and the government has to appoint. So one of the factors in some of the backlog that the ombudsman had already started to identify was that there had been relatively few renewals or um, appointments to the, the board. So there was a lack of members to deal with the caseload that they had at the time. And what essentially happened quite quickly um, with the declaration of the state of emergency or as it was about to be declared, um, is that the LTB, like other uh, offices, began to close, stopped receiving applications, and ultimately a moratorium uh, against evictions really comes out of the cessation of other court activities and on uh, its own ex parte application by the Attorney General to the court to clarify that, uh, and I've sort of quoted in red, so what they sought was an order suspending the execution of all writs of possession to evict residents from their homes during the 2019 novel coronavirus pandemic and ancillary relief, 
And ultimately, it was ordered that during the suspension of the regular court operations by the Chief Justice, the eviction of residents from their homes pursuant to the eviction orders issued by the Landlord and Tenant Board or writs of possession are suspended unless the court orders otherwise upon leave being granted to a party by the court pursuant to the court's procedures for urgent motions. So in effect, what actually happened was the board stopped hearing matters. It canceled all hearings that had been scheduled. And that sort of almost started slowly because I don't think that there was a sense of uh, how long the state of emergency might last. So it sort of came in waves that if you were already had matters on the docket, things were, were uh, being canceled. And then ultimately, the, the board was only hearing applications that would not require it to issue an eviction order. So uh, for cases where the hearing had happened, but the eviction order had not been written or the decision had not been made, they weren't even issuing those. They were uh, having teleconference hearings around tenant applications. And there was the possibility of filing as a landlord an urgent application for eviction where you were relying on a couple of specific grounds for eviction around illegal activity on the residential premises or uh, serious endangerment of safety relating to ongoing health concerns or a safety issue. And any of those hearings were being conducted um, through teleconferencing. Um, and even if the board conducted a hearing and issued a termination order during COVID, in order to get that order enforced, a landlord would have to make a motion to the superior court for a judge to determine whether or not it could be enforced. And there were relatively few and judges, um, the, the ones where they uh, dealt with um, they, they had a very reasoned approach to the, the public health pandemic and balancing the interests of the parties. But the, the, the main ones that they dealt with actually had to do with eviction orders that had been issued before the COVID and before this restriction on enforcement. So if we think about in March of uh, 2019, the sheriff's office in any jurisdiction would already have had some eviction orders that were on their docket to enforce that was put on hold as well. And ultimately for the board, in terms of how much business it usually conducts, um, on average, once they started to get rolling, they were conducting about 20 teleconferences a week versus 300 on average in-person hearings in a, in a regular um, week. And so some of those teleconferences weren't complete hearings, they would be case management hearings, which is something that was implemented on tenant applications. So that's not with a decision maker, that's with a, a mediator. And the, the government had just before uh, the pandemic, so um, the, the bill I wanna talk about, which it, it wasn't, created because of the pandemic, Bill 184. It existed before, but there was a political decision made during the pandemic to move it forward. It had actually been introduced for first reading on March 12th, which has a strange dovetail, I think, for most educators uh, uh, with the how quickly the pandemic changes were happening, because I certainly recollect that it's the day that it was announced that 
you know, it was the last day that my kid went to school and the next day schools were closed um, in, in Toronto. Um, so the bill had been read on that day, no real relationship to the, to the pandemic. And it, it does a number of things, but I just wanted to note here, and I'm glad that uh, Kamel gave you a bit of a background about passing laws. It, it just, it just, it went quite swiftly. We, we know we have a majority government. So when you have a majority government, they're more likely to be able to, to pass their laws. It did go to committees. Those were uh, hearings that were held electronically and one was able to make written deputations and, and whatnot. But the timing of it is really uncomfortable in my view. Um, and that's why I've sort of styled it wrong bill, wrong time, which is something you might've seen in headlines at the time because it really concerned a lot of uh, tenant advocates and I'll get to some of the things that it, it does, but it, it was really, getting the law through was really ramping up at the same time that we were contemplating that maybe the state of emergency would be coming to, to an end. And so the, the bill does a number of things. Um, and it, it has its fancy longer name that refers to social housing because it, it changes some of the rules around uh, subsidies and calculations for people who live in uh, rent geared to income um, uh, subsidized housing. But I, I wanted to focus on a few of the key things that it does that I think impact on access to justice for low income people. And the Landlord and Tenant Board is really a place where uh, a, a lot of people self-represent it's about your home. For, for landlords, it can be about their investment property and their investment may have very tight margins if they're using it to pay their, their uh, mortgage and whatnot. But ultimately, all these processes are about someone either being able to maintain their housing or not maintain their, their housing. And one of the most worrying things that Bill 184 does is it creates an, another ex parte process. And that ex parte process, so uh, an application for eviction without notice to the tenant um, around private agreements that they might enter into for rent payment. And so this is probably the most worrying um, thing about it. It also, it, it used to be that tenants could raise any issues when they're facing an eviction application as though they'd filed their own application. That's this Section 82 defense. And it, the bill doesn't prevent them from doing that. It just requires them to declare it immediately when they receive the arrears application, which it, it sounds sort of reasonable that the other side gets to know. But there were, in my view, already mechanisms within the procedures of the board to ensure that the respondent landlord had an opportunity to, to respond. Um, it also expands the, the types of hearings that the board can hear to include uh, issues after the tenant has vacated the unit. So that's really about collecting unpaid monies. It makes previously illegal rent increases. So rent increases that were not um, taken by the landlord in compliance with the notice requirements of the act. Um, and then it does do some things about uh, evictions around uh, what we call no-fault eviction, so things about renovations, things about owner's own use. So the board now, because the state of emergency ended on the 24th and the moratorium ended with it, despite some efforts by tenant advocates to have the moratorium maintained, um, 
it, it is over. And so the board has started its activities again. And it, the, the concern is that at exactly the time where we're anticipating a second wave, introducing an expedited uh, manner of terminating tenancies is probably not the most prudent strategy. Um, and the, the reality for my clients and for a lot of um, self-representing people is this movement towards conference calls and ultimately some hearings that will happen um, through Microsoft Teams is the preferred method for the board. There'd be a real digital divide for low-income people who can't um, access the tools that you and I access every day to do our work or to communicate with each other. So that's a, a real snapshot, but I think I've eaten up more of my time than I, I should have. That's all right. Thank you, Nina. That was really, really informative. Thank um, you very much. Megan? Thank you. Um, so I'm a criminal lawyer, as you were told earlier. I'm a Crown Attorney for uh, the province of Ontario, and uh, I'm going to talk about um, the uh, how the pandemic has affected us, but starting a little bit with what I call the before times, meaning before the pandemic. Um, and of course, as many of you teachers will know, um, long, long ago, back in the uh, 13th century, uh, King James signed off on the Magna Carta. So here's a pretty picture of that. And our laws, um, as explained by both Kumail and Nina, to a certain extent, um, came from this um, document and then from the decisions of judges in the past and from case law that has existed for hundreds of years back in England and then through to the Commonwealth countries. Um, so here in Canada, we of course, as you likely know, have the Criminal Code of Canada and the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And these govern our criminal law, uh, which are then interpreted um, by uh, judges and they're based on centuries of jurisprudence. Um, but the criminal code also allows for everybody uh, to participate um, in uh, these proceedings remotely, um, although we weren't using that system previously. And, uh, and the only exception, uh, as I understand it, in the code uh, to proceeding remotely is that jurors could not participate remotely, which is interesting. Jurors, of course, don't often participate in our processes because only the more serious charges go to superior court and then end up in front of a jury. Um, but in the event that you're having a jury trial uh, from now on, um, we're now aware that you can't actually have jurors participate remotely, even though just about everybody else can. Now, I think it's possible that as things change and things are changing very rapidly right now, that that'll change too. Um, but for now, that's pretty much the one exception to who can participate remotely. The criminal rules uh, that govern uh, the practice of criminal law in Ontario were implemented in July um, of 2012. And I remember being very excited. I took a special course, I even paid money um, to go to this special course to learn about the new rules because I was excited that we were then going to be able to serve and file uh, electronically. Um, the reality after Ju July of 2012 was in fact uh, very seldom did that happen, certainly at any of the courthouses I practice law at. Um, I could send my, um, my uh, defense counsel on my matters, my electronic materials, 
but I by and large could not file them that way. And for the most part, I still had to kill thousands of trees every time I wanted to do any motion or um, any kind of uh, application in the uh, courts because I had to print them all out, one for the judge, one for defense counsel, one for the court record, one for myself. So whether or not it was allowed in practice, we were not doing things electronically. Um, as you can see, the actual rules here as set out uh, on this slide say that how we can do it. And again, back to what it said in the uh, rules and what was happening in reality, it says here, if electronic filing technology uh, is available and a practice direction authorizes its use, the documents may be served electronically, filed electronically, or both. Um, well, uh, as I've said, that wasn't happening so much. Um, and then we came to the pandemic and overnight things that had been in the works and talked about for 15, 20 years. I, I have friends and family members who were involved in various projects to modernize the criminal justice system and, uh, and they'd kind of gone, I shouldn't say they'd gone nowhere, but they hadn't really progressed that much in many, many years. And then the pandemic happened and overnight uh, everything changed. So uh, sorry about that. Um, specifically, uh, on the 17th of March, just like in the other areas of law, um, we had our trials and preliminary hearings suspended at both levels of criminal court. Um, and the courts continued to function, the criminal courts continued to function because, uh, of course, as you might imagine, in a pandemic, it's not like crime just stops. People do continue, regrettably, to, con to make criminal offenses. And although uh, both the police and the Crown's office were directed to essentially uh, not send people to court for uh, bail hearings or other matters unless it was really and truly necessary, i.e. the crimes were serious enough or the accused person's uh, criminal background, his criminal record uh, was serious enough, even in an effort to keep everybody out of the system, you still have some people who are charged with serious offenses and do need to go to court. Just one example, uh, which will probably not surprise you, is that murder, for example, does require a bail hearing. Um, in fact, murder requires a bail hearing in the Superior Court. So you can't just full stop close all the courts down in criminal law. People have charter rights, they have to be brought to court within 24 hours, and so the courts continued to run those basic functions. Uh, plea courts still ran, um, and the uh, bail courts still ran, but overnight we switched from being mandatory in-person appearances where all counsel, the accused, any witnesses who were testifying would be there in person with very, very few exceptions um, and no audio or video appearances. Um, and then all of a sudden it became uh, initially telephone um, things were happening. So bail hearings were happening by telephone, bail reviews were happening by telephone. Um, we didn't have any trials as far as I'm aware by telephone. Uh, but uh, then after a little bit of time, I mean a couple of weeks, people started figuring out how we could do things by way of video. And overnight, again, in addition to going from mandatory attendance to mandatory not attending and calling in instead, uh, the electronic service and filing of documents became the, the, not only the norm, but required. And I have to say, not everyone in uh, criminal law is equally tech savvy. And I certainly think there are some sole practitioner uh, defense counsel, some of whom may or may not be a little bit older, who probably didn't love this. But from my perspective, this was a huge time 
uh, and energy savings. It's so much easier for me to do things electronically than it is for me to have to print everything out and walk it to the courthouse or whatever. Um, so uh, the informations, um, if you're charged with a criminal offense, we call it an information, which is where your actual charges are listed. And that is the charging document that begins the criminal process. Those have always been pieces of paper typed out, sworn to in front of a justice of peace and then presented in court. And just like pieces of paper do throughout the centuries, sometimes they go missing. Sometimes nobody has any idea where they are. And if we don't have that document, it's a, it's a whole lot of trouble. Um, all of a sudden, now the charging documents were electronic. They were electronically sent to a justice of the peace. Uh, an officer didn't need to attend in person to swear to them and they could be circulated as quickly and easily as an email could. So it made a dramatic uh, change even in the charging document that we were using. Um, and so here is just a snippet of what a document, um, a charging document looks like. And you'll notice that uh, at the top it says here, and I'm circling with my little cursor, deemed to be sworn and affirmed. So that's a relatively new development where there's like a little box that is basically now we're saying instead of the old fashioned way of having somebody come and appear before the Justice of the Peace to swear that the information contained in the information is true, now it's deemed to be sworn. And then the clerk will email the information to the jurist who confirms it and emails it back to the clerk. Voila, you know, the criminal justice system modernized virtually overnight. So, um, as I indicated, arrests and bails uh, all had to continue to happen. And so on the 16th of March, there was um, an announcement that the Ontario court would only deal with emergent uh, and urgent criminal, civil and family cases. On the 17th, there is the declaration of emergency. And then as I previously indicated, police and crowns were told basically, um, do, do everything in your power to be releasing people, um, what, what we call from the station or from the roadside, depending on uh, how serious the offense is. And there are a number of ways that people can be released on terms that say things like don't have contact with the victim or don't possess any weapons or maybe, you know, reside at a certain address. Those kinds of things don't require a bail hearing necessarily. Um, and so a very small percentage of those who were being arrested were now being sent to bail court. So uh, this is where I have moved on to the Brave New World um, post, or I shouldn't say post-pandemic because I don't think we're post it yet, but maybe during and eventually post um, virtual courts. As of July 6th, um, the courts started reopening in phases. They're not what I would describe as fully up and running in the usual sense. Uh, I, generally speaking, am based at the College Park Courthouse. Um, the College Park Courthouse has not opened to in-person events yet. We had a number of different issues uh, relating to how to make it safe for people in that building. And so we're scheduled to open August 17th. Um, but as of July 6th, we started again with a notionally sort of back to normal courthouse. And what actually happened in real life was a combination of different ways to do trials. Some of the trials were happening in person with all of the usual players in the room. Some of the trials were happening uh, in uh, remotely. And uh, some had people calling in from uh, outside uh, to give their evidence by way of telephone. And uh, what was interesting to me was that as, as I should, I think everyone is kind of grappling with how, how do we deal with this? Uh, you know, what's the best way? 
will the victim in my case be served better by being brought in in person, even if she's, you know, maybe concerned about her health or maybe has a, a child care issue at home? Or is it better for the victim to testify from home? And if so, can defense counsel cross-examine her effectively? There's all these issues going on. And everyone in the courtroom, every player in the courtroom is trying to figure out how do we navigate this in the fairest way. So a Superior Court justice um, recently wrote a decision um, and, uh, and we'll get to that in a moment, but the Superior Court is a place where we um, have always attended as lawyers wearing a full uh, multi-piece suit, a black pants or skirt, a black vest, a white shirt, uh, a black robe. Um, uh, you might picture the uh, British barristers wearing uh, wigs. We don't wear wigs because we're modern, um, but here um, in this country, if you wanted to appear as a lawyer in front of uh, the judge, you would show up as these three ladies are dressed here. So those are the robes. Um, this is a, uh, you know, pretty big deal to appear in Superior Court in your robes. You kind of get excited about when you're a new lawyer. Um, and now, uh, according to this decision, very recent decision by a judge in a matter called Qureshi, um, this is the judge saying that they've had a fulsome discussion with counsel regarding the logistics and the court has made the following orders with respect to the trial. The trial will continue via Zoom, you know, Zoom, where you hang out with your friends and drink a glass of wine and, and chat about fun things now being used for trials in Superior Court. And the judge goes on to say that the coordinates for the Zoom hearing will be provided by the court office and counsel need not gown. I mean, this is major. Now, all of a sudden, we're running trials in Superior Court wearing, I wouldn't say whatever you want. I don't think you could show up in a bikini, but, um, but not in court robes anymore. So this is a huge, huge change. And this is hundreds of years of history that, at least in this case, at least by this judge, have been eliminated almost overnight. And so um, then this is my very last screen. It's, uh, it's related more to the work that I do now. Uh, I work in a police station now. But in addition to the changes that are going on in the courtrooms, um, I thought it was interesting to see that the Toronto Police Service now have 50% uh, of the women, of the people in their training class are women. And 41% of the class is made up of cadets from racialized and indigenous communities. So I put this last slide in to, to say, even as all of this is still evolving and and changing this this is you know there are some pretty positive outcomes happening and one of them is we're we're sort of modernizing in a lot of different ways and our police force should soon hopefully be even more reflective of the community that it serves uh than before so uh that is my update on how the pandemic has impacted um the criminal justice system Thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we've all heard little bits and pieces about how court processes are going online or how there's been this moratorium on evictions, but it's really helpful to hear it all laid out from an authoritative perspective uh, and so clearly. So thank you for that. Um, anyone, feel free to submit questions if you have them. Um, otherwise, I'd like to pick up on something uh, in the interim that uh, Camille had, had brought up, which is um, you know, what do, what do we think about uh, the horizon from here? What parts of this, of the sort of move to online and digitizing court processes, should we expect to survive the end of the, the pandemic? Um, 
I think part of partially wrapped into this question for a lot of us who work with uh, vulnerable populations in one way or another is um, how do we also think about the long horizon of, of these sorts of uh, justice processes, especially for people who may not have really reliable access to internet or you know, uh, quiet private spaces where they're able to sit for a long period to participate in, in uh, court proceedings. Um, I'm interested in any of your, your takes on that or experiences you've had with it so far. Yeah, I, I don't mind weighing, weighing in first. I, I do think that the technological adaptations that we're seeing now are here to stay. And uh, as are the access just to justice problems that pre-exist those technological innovations, those will continue to be present. And I, I think that's something that we really need to be mindful about. And uh, there will need to be greater steps taken to ensure access to justice, whether that's if, if relying on technology, providing technology in the way that, for example, the TDSB has made efforts to provide students with devices. We may need to think about those types of approaches or having spaces within public courts where those without technology can attend. Um, I will say, this is slight aside, the, I'm also a mediator in the discussion about Zoom mediation and, and uh, adaptations has been around for a long time, perhaps 10 or 15 years. Uh, it's a concept referred to as online dispute resolution, much discussion about it. But what happened quite remarkably on March 15th or 16th is that that culminated in an overnight change yeah. to online dispute resolution in the private mediation and arbitration world. So what, what the courts are now sort of taking steps to do as we move forward literally happened in the private sector within days. Um, and, and so it is working in, in a lot of settings, but I do think you're quite right to raise the concerns about access to justice. And we, I think that's a question we need to ask when we're engaging participants through some form of online dispute resolution to, to determine, much like we do with human rights and other issues, is there, we, there's a positive obligation, I think, to ask, what, what, if anything, do you need in order to fully participate in this process? Frankly, we should, be, we should have been asking that question because the courts themselves are not super accessible as they're set up. But um, as we move forward with technology, I think it's, it's even more important. Megan, did you have something to add? Um, in the criminal context, things are a little bit different. I would say that there's some argument to be made that an accused person uh, is facing an even greater potential jeopardy um, because they're facing the po possible loss of liberty. Um, but on the other hand, because the criminal justice system, you know, takes the rights of the accused very seriously, uh, there's either uh, duty counsel who are available to help, free legal aid duty counsel, or um, private counsel, um, which is not to say that all accused persons have a lawyer and where they don't, that can be a real challenge because of course they are, you know, they are facing potentially very serious outcomes if they're not, uh, if they're not successful in defending themselves. Um, and because they close the courts down to everything but bail during the um, sort of 
early stages of the pandemic, we didn't have to deal with any self-represented accused who who had who didn't have help because if you're in um, jail and you're trying to get out, then you at least have duty counsel available to help you. In cases where a person is self-representing um, going forward and they either cannot afford or do not want uh, defense counsel to help them, it's going to be interesting because a lot of the accused persons, especially in the downtown core, uh, have no fixed address. They have no money. Uh, they have no resources. They don't have a computer. How do you call in if you don't have a phone? So there are, there are access to justice issues that are ongoing and I don't have a solution, but I know that they are front of mind for those that are trying to make these arrangements. And so it'll be interesting to see as we go forward. You know, I'm interested if you have any thoughts as from the clinic side. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think that the, this really amplifies some of the access mm -hmm. to justice issues that were pre-existing. And in, in forums where folks are often represented by counsel, it's going to facilitate a lot of things. And maybe maybe the savings, quote unquote, that are realized there in terms of time or tribunal resources can then be redirected to trying to solve this problem. But, you know, even from the, the community legal aid side of things or legal aid more generally and the levels of funding that it receives and its ability to adapt to technological change, it's, it's, it's not something that was anticipated in anybody's uh, budget. And it's a really, it's a very real thing for a community-based uh, clinic. You know, I, I, I can't emphasize that enough. And, and there's a way in which the landlord and tenant board got as much business done as it did get done because people showed up. People were physically there and things were physically happening on the, the courtroom steps. And so um, absolutely the calling in uh, is not a realistic thing. Setting up our offices to make that available. I, I do think it's going to be incumbent on boards and tribunals to be creating, um, expending resources to, to make that possible for, for people. We don't see everybody. They don't, they don't all come through our doors. Um, I do know that during the modified operations of the tribunal, tenant duty council continued to operate and would sit in on, on hearings. Um, but there was a really a high number of hearings that happened without all participants there. And that had to do, I think in part two with how service happens by the board. And I know they're trying to move to electronic service, which, which again is not, they're trying to figure out how to do the things that they were doing slowly in the old format uh, quickly now because of their backlog. So it's gonna create some very, very real um, challenges. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm mindful that we've gone a minute over, but we, I do just wanna to get to one quick question uh, from our participants, if that's all right. Uh, Lorianne has asked, um, many Jordan applications cite the system backlog as reasons for delay. Uh, from what I've heard many times at a space capacity issue, could using technology for portions of the criminal trial process speed things up, free up courtrooms and justice schedules so that uh, Jordan will not control the case outcome as often as it was pre-COVID. Uh, Jordan, of course, being the recent case um, that sort of put limits on how much of a delay or how long certain criminal processes ought to take uh, and still be within a certain tolerable range. Uh, Megan, do you have any thoughts on this? I do. And I am, I, I am fearful that 
all the new technology in the world is not going to save our Jordan problem. And I say that because even if we have things going on virtually, they're still based in physical courtrooms. And even during the height of the pandemic, there were oftentimes judges sitting in a real courtroom, even if they were alone or largely alone, there's still recording of the um, proceedings that needs to take place. So a court reporter needs to be there. There needs to be filing of electronic documents with the clerk. Um, etc. And so since our system is presently still based in a physical courtroom, even if the actual proceedings are taking place online, and given that we don't have any more courtrooms now than we did at the beginning of the pandemic, and also, um, just as an aside, I think that there are some judges uh, who may choose to retire uh, at this juncture instead of change completely the way that things are being done, I think we're likely to have the same number of courtrooms, but potentially at least briefly fewer judges and um, and yet this huge backlog. And I'll tell you that my sense of how uh, at least me and my colleagues are dealing with it is that we're essentially triaging. And frankly, sadly, uh, because there are still victims, even if it's a less serious offense, we're pulling a lot of cases where possible or trying to resolve perhaps for less than we might have otherwise resolved for previously in order to reduce the backlog and be able to focus on the more serious cases. But there's still, honestly, there's going to be a huge backlog and I am not totally sure what's going to happen. And I do see a lot of Jordan applications coming down the pipe. I'm sure that that's going to be a big thing that we deal with for the next year or so. Fair enough. Um, all right. Thank you so much for sticking with us, even as we've gone a couple of minutes late. Uh, we really, really appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, also for attending. Um, once more, please join me in giving our thanks to Kamel Karimji, Nina Hall, and Megan Scott. Uh, this was absolutely great and really, really informative. So thank you to all three of you. Thank you. To, uh, to all our participants, uh, thank you as well for joining us. Um, please, if you're interested, take a look at the upcoming webinars that we have. We have two more rounding out the Summer Law Institute series. One really interesting one on fertility law, which will also be engaging questions about uh, trans healthcare, uh, gender nonconforming people's right to fertility treatments. Um, and a whole bunch of other issues and a session on what you can expect from OGEN, how we can support you in the coming year with all of the online, high flex, synchronous, asynchronous stuff that we're all gonna be figuring out together. Um, so thanks once more, and I hope we'll see you again at a later webinar. Take care, everyone.